0: It's June 2023, and the government has yet again just changed the rules for asylum seekers at the southern border of the U.S. So what is going on right now at the southern border? We've talked in previous episodes about Title 42. You'll remember that that's the public health law that the previous administration pulled out of obscurity to use as a pretext to block asylum seekers from entering the U.S. during the pandemic. And you heard about how the current administration has kept that policy in place for quite a while, in fact, until May 12th of this year. When Title 42 ended in May, the administration rolled out a new set of policies that are aimed at reducing the number of asylum seekers who can enter the U.S. every day, including requiring people to sign up for a limited number of daily appointments on a mobile phone app. So how is this all playing out for people? I'm Jenny Gilroy, and this is Inadmissible. Today, we are thrilled to be talking with Laura Pena. Laura is the director of ProBar. They're part of the American Bar Association, and they provide legal services to immigrants in Harlingen, Texas. Harlingen is in the Rio Grande Valley, right across the border from Matamoros, Mexico. Laura is an immigration expert. She's held many different positions, including working at the Department of State under the Obama administration, and more recently, leading the Beyond Borders program at the Texas Civil Rights Project. Laura's from the Rio Grande Valley herself, and she also hosts her own podcast called Valle de Sueños. It's the story of a 10-day journey by border advocates to shut down a refugee encampment in Matamoros, Mexico. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jenny. It's great to be here with you. The administration recently made some changes to the way asylum seekers can request asylum at the border. So, Can you talk a little about what it looks like now for people who want to seek asylum at the southern border, people who travel there and make make their way to the U.S. border in Mexico? What is it like for people and what do they need to do in order to be able to request asylum in the U.S. now? Certainly.
1: Thanks so much. Um, With the end of Title 42, which I believe you all have discussed quite a bit on your podcast, it was a... uh, part of the public health law that was implemented to essentially close down our borders to asylum seekers in the name of public health. Uh, Now that the public health emergency has been ended overall, right, because we are trying to get back to the new normal, instead of, you know, getting to a new normal at the US Mexico border. Unfortunately, there are a series of of rules that were put into place uh, that has actually made it harder for people seeking protection in the United States uh, to do so at the border. Right now, what we're seeing, and I'm with um, an organization that's affiliated with the American Bar Association, is the Pro Bono Asylum Representation Project in South Texas. We're based in Harlingen, Texas. I live in Brownsville. This is the southernmost tip of Texas. So if you can envision Texas, the little tiny boot at the at the bottom, uh, we are on the border with Mexico and also beautifully on the Gulf of Mexico. So we have some lovely beaches as well in my community. We are a binational, bicultural community as well. Uh, we have for decades had a close relationship with Mexico ever, I mean, ever since the creation of you know, Texas in the late 1800s. And so there has always been a very generous back and forth of Americans leave, living in Texas, uh, Tejanos, some of them, I call this themselves. Going to Mexico to Matamoros is the closest city. Traveling there to visit family to um, have medical appointments or to get some medicines. I used to have a a dentist growing up that was on the Mexican side of the border. And so uh, being from the region and now running an asylum project also in the borderlands gives me a unique perspective of what it means Uh, to be really stuck in this particular area of the country. And so starting on the Mexican side of the border, what we're seeing is just an increase in the number of people who are making it to to the border to seek protection, and they are being blocked. They're being blocked in a few ways. One way is by the requirement to, instead of speak to an officer, an immigration officer, who's there at a, at a port of entry, which in my case is a bridge. There's a river separating the countries. Instead of being able to present and say, I am afraid to go back to my home country. I cannot stay in Mexico either. I want to seek protection. The government is requiring people to have an appointment. And that appointment system is available on an on an application called CBP1. Now, for anybody who has worked with, it could be any type of traumatized population. In the United States, you may be uh, working uh, with survivors of domestic violence. You might work in, in the area of public health uh, where you know there's a lot of medical emergencies, or you could um, you know, work maybe in ER. You know, an ER department at a at a hospital, even in schools. Right? Um, uh, certain types of counselors deal with people who are vulnerable, people who are traumatized. Now, imagine though that type of person saying, "I need help. I am scared," and you say, "Okay, well, you got to use this app." Putting this technology barrier between somebody who truly needs help and access, there is now this technological barrier. So you say, okay, maybe that's not so bad. Maybe, okay, you need to make an appointment. Fine. Only the app has so many limitations.
0: So First what languages is the app available in Lota? Uh
1: Right now, and maybe you can help me with this, Jenny, I believe it's only English, Spanish, and and Creole. Is that right?
0: Yeah, but are asylum yeah. seekers only coming from English, Creole, and Spanish-speaking countries? <laughs>
1: no, no, they're not. They're coming from many different countries. Language is one barrier. But even before getting to uh, language, and whether it's the language that it's in or literacy is it is a huge issue, whether it be reading literacy or technology literacy, right? So. Even before getting to the language of the application itself, you have to have access to the internet. And we know here in the United States that there's already a digital gap within our own country. And so you think about uh, Mexican border towns, and these are sort of, I would almost say, outcast populations in these border towns, the, mig- the migrant community. Or tend to be not welcomed in these border towns and targeted by uh, cartels. And so they don't have regular access that Mexican citizens would. And so they, many many of times, uh, as people congregate, there are these makeshift encampments that pop up in the Mexican border towns. There is no electricity, there is no access to clean water, and there is no internet. So I spoke with a family last week, and the father told me the internet is $6 a day. Do I feed my family today, or do I try and get
0: the internet
1: to try and make an appointment?
0: Is there a limitation on the number of appointments available? Like if you spend that $6 on a given day, how likely are you to actually get an appointment?
1: Great question. So let's say this father decides I'm going to get internet and we're going to go hungry for the day. That's a hard decision that the family makes. They get the internet and then they, um, let's assume that they can read the language. They have, they're able to click on the app uh, there are, are a limited number of appointments across the border that are available. And those appointments become available every morning and run out as they are taken. So you have potentially tens of thousands of people accessing the app at one time for a limited number of appointments, which is a thousand across the US Mexico border. What this means is that the app is it almost feels like it crashes. You get you know everybody knows you know when you're when your computer's acting up, you get that little spinning wheel, right? And so in this app, there is a seal, an immigration agency seal that just keeps on, you know, and the and the advice is don't move away from that seal, stay on it because you're in the queue. but basically, you know it is it is not accessible because the appointments are taken up immediately and nobody else you know nobody else will have access after for those appointments are taken so that is you know accessibility and the limited number of appointments uh you know the type of device you have also makes a difference right so an iphone 11 is going to work very differently than you know, a, a very old you know, Nokia phone, and even having a phone, although many people do have phones, they're not of high quality. To be able to have an experience, because it's not an app that you download; you're on a web browser. I need to double check if, if there haven't been versions where you have to download app. I don't think so, but I would need to double. Let's double check that. But there are a lot of issues with the types of phones devices people have and whether or not the app actually functions. Uh, there's other requirements like you have to take a photo of yourself. Technology does discriminate and so you know you have darker skinned migrants who the application is not accepting their photos because of the darkness and so you're having to shine these incredibly bright lights and people's faces and have the white background and just different angles. And so uh, the discrimination uh, and the photo feature is, is, really, is, is really horrific as well. So those are some of the challenges uh, with the CBP One app. It is less than ideal. And I think in theory, having a tool that people could set up appointments is one thing but not understanding the population it's serving. It it just, it is, people have told me that it feels like the U.S. government doesn't want them to come, that it's not intended to work. It's actually intended to keep people away.
0: What do people do while they're waiting? Because it sounds like With only a thousand appointments available every day and all these limitations that you're discussing, I imagine some people have to wait days, weeks, maybe months. What do people do? How do they survive? What have you heard from clients that ProBar has worked with?
1: I spoke with a a person from uh, Venezuela last week. Uh, He was detained at Port Isabel Detention Center. This is an ICE immigration jail in South Texas. He had been waiting for four months. Uh, in the border region, and he was barely making it. Part of the time, he was in a shelter. He was discriminated against in the shelter. This is a, a a black Venezuelan man. There was a point at which it was no longer tenable for him to stay in in the Mexican border town. So he crossed irregularly. So some people they'll wait and wait and wait and then they get some threats they've been extorted the last time that they can be there's no more money to pay to the cartels Um, their lives are at risk and so they uh, some some of them make the decision to cross um, between ports of entry so in my region they say crossing the river that's that's how it's described so uh, some people do make that decision since uh, these new rules in effect If somebody makes that decision and is apprehended by an immigration official, or many times people just turn themselves over, they want to follow the rules. So they they can't get an appointment, so they go anyway, but then they find somebody, right, to to say, okay, hey, I'm, I'm here. I do want to present myself and seek asylum. At that point, there are these new limitations or in immigration law, they're considered bars to asylum. Just a little bit of background in 1996, which was the last time we had a, a major immigration update to our laws, uh, when Congress was somewhat working together, there was a process for fast-track deportation put into the law. These new rules beef up that fast-track deportation process, and they create Even fewer opportunities to be able to access asylum. So, what does that look like practically? It looks like okay, if somebody crossed irregularly, they will be apprehended and then they'll be put in a detention center, a jail uh, that's run by one of the agencies. It's Customs and Border Protection. In this particular immigration jail context, it's intended for short term. It is not. There are very limited um, access to phones, limited access to food, no shower facilities, uh, often overcrowding. Uh, These jails are not intended to have people in them for very long. However, when numbers get high, there can be overcrowding in some of these facilities. One example, when overcrowding happens, people get sick and there's not enough medical attention. Two weeks ago, an eight-year-old little girl died in one of these jails in Harlingen, Texas, where we work. There's a real life consequence when the only option that people, after trying to do it, follow the rules, get an appointment, are not able to, you know, they try and get to the United States the only way that they can. They turn themselves over for the most part. And then they're put in these, you know, really inhumane conditions in in CBP custody. Once they are there, they're supposed to receive an interview within 24 hours. I call this interview a a pre-asylum interview. It's kind of like a screening where an asylum officer will ask specific questions to determine whether or not this person or this family has a claim. And so, okay, that kind of makes sense, right? Okay, they're gonna be screened before they go into the court system. The issue is that this screening, now there are several additional hurdles. And some of these hurdles are, if you didn't make an appointment on that glitchy app, you get ding, you get a penalty there, right? Another penalty, I'll call them penalties, baseball terms, right? Easier to understand. Another penalty, another strike against you is if you cannot prove, let's say for this Venezuelan individual, that in every country that they passed through before getting to Mexico, that they did not a seek protection in that country and b were denied protection. So that is several countries, I think it might be like 8 countries, maybe mm-hmm. 9 that that Venezuelan person would have to prove that they saw some sort of protection and were denied. Many of these countries, their systems are not equipped to be able to handle that sort of process and be able to meaningfully offer a protection interview. And I say protection broadly, right? It could be asylum. It could be other forms of protection in that country. And so what that ends up doing, because we do have a serious migration issue, humanitarian and migration um, patterns happening at high levels from South America, from Haiti, from Central America, what that means in practice is that most of the migrants presenting at the border are going to have this penalty as well. What What do these penalties mean? These penalties mean that they're not going to be eligible for asylum. And they might be eligible for some other form of relief, um, the Convention Against Torture, withholding of removal. These are much more limited protections under the law, much, much more limited and much harder to get. So we're really squeezing the law to be much more limited for most people at the
0: border. Is your sense that the U.S. is doing this in part to try to stop people from coming? And do you think that this is, you know, are you seeing fewer people coming and trying to seek protection in the United States?
1: The numbers have decreased, Jenny. I think the message that the U.S. border is still closed despite the ending of Title 42 has resonated in the region. But that doesn't mean that all of the factors in those home countries, people are not coming to the U.S. because they want to. Venezuela is imploding. That regime is starving its entire population. A mother, Venezuelan mother told me, we used to eat mangoes, mangoes for breakfast, mangoes for lunch, mangoes for dinner. There's not even any mangoes available anymore. And so People aren't going to stop coming just because there is, it's harder, right? Because the factors in their home countries, what we call push factors, are still there. We also have seen Jenny, you know, it was, I think it was maybe three months ago, the New York Times had an article exposing many US companies for utilizing child labor. And these are particularly migrant children who are coming to the US on their own because they can get work and send it to their families in the region. That is a pull factor, but US companies wanting cheap labor and going to the point of where they're actually violating child labor laws. These issues are complex and, you know, tightening the screws at the border fails to address them holistically.
0: And leads to tremendous suffering for people who are coming to the U.S. seeking humanitarian protection. That's absolutely right. We've been working a lot of Asina with the Afghan population. And I, there are quite a few Afghans now who have, uh, because of the horrific humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan at this point, can't stay there safely and have made their way to the border. And definitely many of them do not read English, Spanish, and Haitian Creole and may have difficulties navigating this system. Absolutely. Among many other populations who do as well. Laura, this has been really helpful. We're very grateful for you for for speaking with us. And just to kind of wrap things up, I'm wondering if there's anything that you would want to share with Americans generally about, you know, from your view at the southern border where you are in Harlingen, right across the border from Matamoros, you know, what would you want other Americans to know about what's actually happening at the southern border right now?
1: Sure. I think big picture and being a native of the borderlands, the border is a safe and welcoming place. And to anybody listening, even traveling down to South Padre Island in, southern, in, in South Texas would be an experience uh, to, to uh, see the treasures that we have on the border and experience uh, the bicultural a binational community that we have. On the topic of asylum and humanitarian protection at the border, you know, the end of Title 42 did not open up the border. There were already really harsh laws in place before. Those harsh laws remain in place today, and the president has made them even harsher. And so, what that has resulted in is a lot more suffering for people trying to seek protection in the United States and have access to the American dream. Uh, That is not the history of our country. That is not something that we have limited. I think in the past, it is something, an idea that we have held close to our consciousness, close, close to our identity as a nation. And these new rules being put in place are contrary my opinion, to who we are as a nation. Thank you so much. Can I give a plug on Valle de Sueños?
0: Absolutely, please.
1: For folks who want to hear a little more about various experiences on the U.S.-Mexico border, I would encourage them to check out my podcast, Via de Sueños. I'll just give the website. Uh, Valle de Sueños is V-A-L-L-E. S-U-E-N-O-S.com, and it is available on Apple and Spotify and Amazon podcasts. And this is really an opportunity, or I just, I told the story of what it was like. It was a 10-day experience in February 2021 to close one of the refugee encampments in a humane, dignified way, where there was cooperation by the governments, by civil society, and by International Humanitarian Organization. So it is a one point in time, but where you can see the glimmer of uh, an ability to treat people with dignity, with respect. So if people want to hear that, I would encourage them to check out Valladolid de Sueños.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks so much for joining us
1: for this episode of Inadmissible. We look forward to bringing you more episodes, and we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast. To learn more about how to get involved with Vecina's work, visit Vecina.org. That's V-E-C-I-N-A dot O-R-G. See you next time.